0: Good evening. Thank you to our audience for joining us online and to our speakers here at the Arizona State University California Center at the Historic Herald Examiner Building. With great respect, Zocalo Public Square acknowledges the Yuhaviyatam, the first people of this ancestral and unceded territory of Ya'angna that we now know as downtown Los Angeles. We honor their elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviyatam descendants who are part of the Gabrielino Tangva and the Fernandeño Tataviam nations. We recognize that the Tongva are still here, and we are committed to lifting up their stories, culture, and community. As Kuyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. I'm Sarah Rothbard, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Zocalo Public Square, a creative unit of Arizona State University. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free, and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at Zoculapublicsquare.org, on all the major podcast platforms, and on YouTube, where you can also subscribe for our latest events. Tonight's program is part of our ongoing partnership with the California Wellness Foundation, exploring health equity in rural communities around the state. It includes events and essays. Our latest piece explored the state's post-carbon future. We're especially excited to be publishing and hosting an event this spring around the question, what does the end of mass incarceration mean for prison towns? Tonight, we're asking, can California solve its air quality inequality? Our moderator is Saul Gonzalez, whose career has spanned television and radio from PBS to NPR. Reporting on topics including human rights abuses, homelessness, and wildfires, he's earned numerous Emmy and Golden Mike awards, and now spends his time traveling around his home state for KQED's The California Report. Over to you, Saul.
1: Thank you, Sarah. And thank you all who are watching for joining us tonight. We're gonna get to some really important issues with some fantastic guests. So let me tell you who they are. First off, we have Manuel Pastor. He's a distinguished professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. And he's the director of the USC Equity Research Institute. His research has focused on economic, environmental, and social conditions facing low-income urban communities and on social movements seeking to change those realities. He is the co-author with Chris Benner of Solid Solidarity, solidarity economics, why mutuality and movements matter. I'm sure we'll be talking a bit about that later. Dr. Catherine Garupa-White is the executive director of the Central Valley Air Quality Coalition, which works to restore clean air to the San Joaquin Valley. It's the nation's most polluted air basin for fine particles. I did not know that. Catherine also lectures in geography at CSU Stanislaus and Columbia College. She's an activist scholar dedicated to environmental justice and health equity, and finally, Mary Nichols is the former chair of the California Air Resources Board. She served as chair from 2007 to 2020 and led the board in crafting California's internationally recognized climate action plan. In her 45-year career as an environmental attorney, she's worked with the Natural Resources Defense Council, the U.S. EPA's Office of Air and Radiation, in the Clinton Administration, and UCLA's Institute of Environmental and Sustainability. She is currently a visiting fellow at the Columbia University Center on global energy policy. All right. And I just scratched the surface. There's so many things I could say about them, but we'll find out more in the conversation. Before we go on, I want to thank you all for joining us here tonight. And I want to encourage the audience to start sending us questions. We're looking at them in real time. um, So craft a good question about air quality. Try to stay on topic, if you will. And we'll do our best to get to it toward the end of this. And um, so start sending them along. Okay. Big picture question here, and Mary Nichols, I think I'll go to you for this one. But everybody, feel free to chime in at any time. Sure. When I take a breath of California air in 2022, how does it compare, generally speaking, to air quality? If I had taken that breath in 1985, 1975, is it cleaner air and how much cleaner?
2: It is cleaner air than it was, uh, certainly much cleaner than it was for people who grew up here in the 60s, the 70s. Uh, I moved out here in 1971 and there were almost 250 days in the average year where we violated the federal standards for clean air. And more days than that, when you couldn't actually see the mountains to the east of us. And although visibility isn't the same thing as a health effect, it's a pretty good indicator of where there's a lot of particles in the air. So uh, yes, the air quality has improved. And it's measurably, uh, on whatever standards there are, uh, it has improved. But we know more than we did about how harmful air is to people. Uh, We also have pockets of, uh, pockets of badness, uh, where uh, people are exposed to unhealthy amounts of particularly toxic air contaminants, which are not the things that we measure at the big regional scale. So things that are um, actually carcinogens uh, or have very acute effects on people's health. So the, the picture is not Um, all a steady line in the direction of progress by any means. But if you look at what this place was like, and then you think about the numbers of people who live here today and the number of vehicles that are out there on the roads, we would have all choked a long time ago, as would the economy of this region, if we hadn't, we the people of this area, hadn't made serious efforts to clean it up.
1: Yeah, I just think of those that 1970s archival film of LA where you would just see just you couldn't even see the Hollywood sign. Downtown LA was just hidden behind this Venusian smog or fog, you know. So it looked looked like another planet. Um,
3: I would just add, go ahead. That is Los Angeles I grew up in. That's Los Angeles. uh, Grew up in La Puente, which is just east of East LA, and it's a place where the smog could actually funnel through the San Gabriel Valley on the way to its dumping ground in the Inland Empire. And when I was growing up, there was so much asthma amongst the children. There was so much lack of visibility. Uh, You can describe it, but it's different being a kid, looking up and saying, not just that you can't see the mountains, but you can't really see something 500 feet away because of the lack of visibility. It has gotten significantly better. And I think the challenge for California right now is how do we take that level of attention that we paid? Do more. Mm -hmm. Do more on climate, and in particular do more on the topic of this particular uh, session, which is environmental inequality. Because what's become apparent was that we were documenting well the overall environmental uh, quality issues, and in the last 25 years we've begun to document how deep the disparities are. And it's important for people to understand that those disparities are not just from income, because there's a tendency to think that when you look at uneven air quality, that maybe it's just poorer neighborhoods that have worse hair, more toxics, etc. But in the research, what you find is that the gradient of exposure by race is actually steeper than the gradient of exposure by income, mm. meaning that this is a reflection of structural racism in our siting practices, where we've put our freeways, all the kind of riskscape that's emerged. And so it's heartening to see that the state in recent years has been taking the environmental justice task as seriously as the air quality task.
1: You've put a lot on the table. We're going to come back to that in, uh, uh, in a bit. Very quickly, that, though. That's what academics so, so, so you remember those days where you <laughs> couldn't like, go outside, uh, what, like at school. You would have those days where you couldn't go outside to the no, playground. Reasons. You had to stay inside, right?
3: Literally that, but also uh, not being able to see 500 feet away and saying, not realizing that, you know, what is that doing to my lungs? as well as to my experience.
1: Um, Catherine with the Central Valley Air Quality um, Coalition. um, Tackle the question, I mean, what's changed in your part of California, which where millions of people live over the past 20, 30 years, or you pick the time span?
4: Sure. Well, I mean, I think the honest answer would be not enough has changed. Relief hasn't come quickly enough for the San Joaquin Valley as a region. So we suffer epidemic levels of sickness due to our air pollution problem. And as our speakers have already mentioned, it's not distributed equally. There are particular neighborhoods where people of color, low-income communities, and all of these other social and economic vulnerabilities are layered. Um, So not only do we have a persistent and ongoing challenge, we now see accelerating climate impacts that are in fact, making the situation worse. So in the summertime in the San Joaquin Valley, where we have a lot of the smog or the ozone pollution because it's high heat, we're now having extreme heat and catastrophic wildfires that are pumping all kinds of particles into the air at the same time that people are breathing unhealthy levels of ozone. And we know from the science that those impacts are only going to increase.
1: Where does the, for people who don't know, where does the pollution come from? in the Central Valley? Because I think a lot of people think, well, it's agricultural land, it's wide open spaces, it's big sky country. So where where does all that stuff in the atmosphere, where's it coming from versus in LA or San Diego or San Francisco?
4: So, the Central Valley Air Quality Coalition contrib- uh, attributes our root causes of air pollution to three main categories that we use the acronym DOA, which to some people is dead on arrival. Uh, for us in the San Joaquin Valley, it's development, oil, and agriculture. So, sprawling land use and transportation planning, particularly warehouses, distribution centers, um, you know, magnet sources, where again, pollution can be concentrated. We have an IKEA distribution center in the San Joaquin Valley, but our whole region doesn't have an IKEA store. right? So again, we're we're disproportionately getting those sources concentrated there. The oil industry has a very long history in the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley. Some of the most productive oil fields in the United States are in Kern County. So energy production absolutely has produced a lot of pollution. Um, And then, as you already mentioned, Agriculture, but particularly industrialized agriculture, right? Mass scale agriculture with hundreds of millions of pesticides applied, fertilizers, um, you know, very intensive agriculture. And
1: very big machines kicking up a lot of stuff into the atmosphere, a lot of dust in particular, Absolutely. Matter, right? And
4: yes.
2: Could yes, I just Marianne? pick up on something that, that Catherine said before also, which is about the interaction between the pollutants and heat, because global warming, we know, is increasing the temperatures. We measure increasing temperatures every year now in the Valley and in L.A., that heat obviously has an impact all by itself. That is, people die, literally, from heat exposure. But it also makes the air pollution problem worse because every drop of pollution that's emitted to the air is going to produce more smog as the temperatures go up. So we've got this vicious circle now where because of global warming, the uh, exposures that people are are experiencing on the ground are getting worse. And so despite the heroic efforts that have been made by groups like Catherine's and by the uh, air quality districts and and by the ARB, um, the progress is much slower than it should be, and the whole global warming issue gives us a reason to focus on it. Just
1: one second. Uh, We're going to return to global warming warming in in a bit and climate change and how it intersects (laughs) with air quality issues that we've been discussing for many years. But um, going back to your experience with fighting for cleaner air, you've been involved in this struggle going back to the 70s, right? Mm -hmm in a lot of different places, in a lot of different ways. What do you think when it comes to thinking about the different impacts of poor air quality in different communities that we got wrong, that you all weren't talking about in 1980 or 75 or 85, that now is very front and center in the conversation? Yeah,
2: well, a couple things. One, I think, is that the Clean Air Act, which is where I came in in the early 1970s, had the uh, focus on regional air quality because it was a federal law, and they were concerned about inequities among regions in the United States. And they recognized, science told us, as is true, that uh, pollution travels over many, many miles. And so, instead of focusing on the individual sources or on the people themselves and their what they were being exposed to, they measured it in terms of these broad swaths of geography. This is Catherine and I were talking before we came on today. So the vision was that you would have a regional air quality approach and not look at the individual cities or communities or neighborhoods uh, because that was considered to be sort of the fair way to evaluate how we were doing. And every region in the country would was entitled to be protected to the same degree. Uh, What that didn't take into account is that at the local level and where people actually are breathing this stuff, there really are differences. And it didn't take into account that not all pollutants are uh, equally distributed, so some types of pollutants, like, for example, um, the, uh, the toxic chemicals that come out of diesel vehicles are going to be more uh, harmful. There are more of them, and more people will breathe them when they're right next to the freeway or the port or the distribution center. And so we have to kind of reconfigure the way we look at these things, but the, the Federal Clean Air Act was not written to do that.
1: Manuel, you wanted to say something? Yeah, a couple things. I think
3: the uh, comments of the colleagues are really inspiring in two ways. First, to uh, repeat in a way something that uh, Mary just said, is when you're trying to ask what's going on in a region, you want to set your air monitoring to capture the average. Mm -hmm. And instead, you're not picking up on the hot spots. The second thing, and I think this takes off from Catherine's comments, uh, you talked about DOA, uh, development, oil, and agriculture. What we've realized is that it does mean dead on arrival, (laughs) because those economic interests do not want their profits and business models to be challenged by people who want higher wages, more sustainable agriculture, or a better environment. And so the modern environmental justice movement did not just come out of, people doing research and noticing the disparities that existed. It came out of protest movements that said, we don't want uh, more facilities sited in our neighborhoods. And then they began to demand the kind of research and the political action and the policy
1: change. I think think of others of East L.A., for instance, in the 80s, Mm -hmm. uh, they were fighting the Lancer Project. This is going way back in time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But would that be an example of that, the kind of... Well, of the neighborhood, of the community activism.
3: Perfect example, because the mothers of East L.A. not only resisted a prison being put in their neighborhood, they teamed up with concerned citizens of South L.A., Mm -hmm. a largely black organization, to resist an incinerator Mm -hmm. being put in Vernon. So from the beginning, it was also an attempt amongst these environmental justice folks To both identify the problems that were going on in their neighborhoods, but to build ties across race, across income, across geography, to build a larger movement for environmental justice. And that is certainly what we've seen happen in the Central Valley.
1: Um, Do you think very? very, We're going to go to question. We're getting some questions coming through, so we're going to come to your questions in just a bit. But just a follow up uh, to you, Manuel. Do you think that what's changed in terms of the activism, say, between the eighties and the seventies, and now? Is there more savviness there? Is there more alliance building, um, or is it something else entirely?
3: Well, that's a. Such a big question. I know.
1: Uh, My apologies. Uh, big questions, so, little time. I'm sorry. It's the of the beast.
3: I think that there's a remarkable level of sophistication, particularly amongst the environmental justice organizations in the state of California, that they've been able to combine the organizing with working with researchers to document the problems, and also with working with policymakers to try to change some of the policies. So, I think there's been, and there's work to be done, but uh, the fact that there's a California Environmental Justice Alliance that brings together all of these different groups to try to lobby successfully for policy in Sacramento, that's a development that did not exist in the 80s, when it was really a lot of grassroots groups that didn't yet have developed all of the skills that are necessary to move policy.
2: Well, one of the things that's changed is they've had a lot of success. Not Again, not enough, but yeah. success builds on more success.
1: And, and we should talk. I mean, uh, I mean, we go into this conversation. We should acknowledge there, as you said in the beginning, there's been a lot of success over the last 30, 40 years. We should recognize that. But I, but I want to get to a question um, from uh, one of the... yes, Just yesterday,
3: a campaign that's been going on in Los Angeles for the last decade Mm -hmm. called uh, STAN LA, has actually successfully gotten the city council Mm -hmm. to ban oil drilling in the city of Los Angeles. That is a huge victory that was inconceivable a decade ago. I mean, I supported it, but it wasn't like I was saying, oh yeah, you're going to win. I didn't think that would be possible, Mm -hmm. and yet it has been. So you're right, the success has given groups a sense of more
1: power, of more possibility, Uh, about what they can do? Catherine, when it comes to the Central Valley and San Joaquin Valley, is there any, and this relates to some questions we've gotten, Um, we've got a question about regenerative farming and whether those regenerative farming practices could help with air pollution issues in the valley. And and just more generally, when when it comes to corporate agriculture in in, in the valley, is there anything that could change farming practices, um, farming infrastructure that could help with um, cleaning up the air,
4: absolutely. You know, there's a definitely a growing movement around concepts like agroecology. So, trying to work more with natural environments and natural systems. I think scaling practices to the ecosystem, right? Not growing crops that are water intensive if we don't have the water available. I think the biggest challenge, as Manuel pointed to earlier, is the political will, right? And the willingness of those industries to actually transition their pa- practices away from these resource intensive ways of doing it to ways that are more in line with what natural environments can sustain.
1: But can you do that and still and still sustain kind of the agricultural output we become accustomed to? I mean...
4: To some degree, yes, and to some degree, no. I mean, the the... Agriculture in the San Joaquin Valley today is not sustainable. That's why we have subsidence. That's why we have the worst air pollution in the United States, right? Because we are overexploiting the system. We are putting more pollution into it than it can possibly sustain. Um, so agriculture has to change, right? other factors like the sustainable groundwater management act to some degree are going to force some of the farmland to become fallow. Ideally it would be a lot better if we crafted regionally a vision for what type of agriculture we wanted in our region because we have we're in a Goldilocks zone of a Mediterranean climate where we can grow things that lots of other places can't be grown Um, and that is something precious that we should be working to preserve where for the last 150 years it really has been incredibly exploitive of people and land
1: and uh, another very um, uh, Valley centric question that we got in and that is geography and air pollution there does do, do some of the pollution problems there come from coastal areas I mean is this drift from the Bay Area or from the greater LA area into the San Joaquin Valley
4: so this is a super common question um, that we get a lot there has been research that is good too by the way, <laughs> there has been research done by the San Joaquin Valley Air District to look at how much pollution might be drifting over from China or how much might be coming from the Bay Area. The honest truth is most of it is homegrown. The vast majority of it is coming from the San Joaquin Valley.
1: Oh, really? So it's not, you can't, because, uh, I guess with Owens Valley as well, too, right? Is and there are pollution There's problems there? There's
2: pollution generated everywhere in the state. But if you look at the measurements, it's going to be mostly the local stuff, yeah.
3: yeah. Manuel? I think the one uh, somewhat of an exception to this is the so-called inland empire, where a lot does get pushed from the coastal areas out to Riverside and San Bernardino, in two ways, both direct kind of air patterns, but also the fact that they bear the burden of the logistics industry, the right. warehousing, the trucks, the diesel traffic, and while we've done a better job of sort of trying to eliminate uh, diesel trucks out of the ports, uh, you know. They take the long haul right. through the uh, San Gabriel and into Valley and into the Inland Empire, and that's something where we really need to solve that by thinking about uh, interregional
1: equity as well as neighborhood equity. Mary Nichols, I promise to get to climate change. We've come to climate change. Uh, Mary Nichols, um, how do you think that is going to the the, 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 the increased focus, rightful increased focus on, on climate change? How does that intersect with the longer conversation we've had uh, about just plain old air pollution? So this is one of the
2: reasons why environmental justice is such a hot topic now, in addition, of course, to successful uh, organizing, and to the fact that the legislature now has a much uh, different complexion and makeup than it did back in 1970 when I first moved out here. Just in, you know, over the over the years, it's changed, and uh, and we have more people who grew up in smoggy areas and/or come from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, or at least uh, first first generation, you know, being in positions of that kind of power. Uh, taking the reins of of our political system. But the connection is that um, to take successful action on climate change, you have to deal with the inequalities and you have to deal with the sources of the same combustion pollutants that are causing localized distress because they are also causing the greenhouse gas emissions. And so ever since the First, um, AB 32, the California Global Warming Solutions Act back in 2006, um, there has been this connection between environmental justice as, as an issue but also as a, uh, a way of thinking about how to solve the problem that had never uh, existed before. And it's given the air pollution agencies a whole new focus of their activities um, they are now required and they're really learning how to consult with communities when they are developing their plans and not just doing them on a technical basis you know in-house looking at the at what you can achieve with changes in fuels or you know changes in processes but really looking at what the communities that these facilities are in I uh, want, want to see happen.
1: Manuel, I know you want to say something. I yeah. i picking up on the language of your body when you're exactly. ready to talk.
3: Well, it's uh, that the inequality issue is not disconnected from the air quality issue right. in several different ways. There's a great article that some friends of mine did, Academics. I'm hardly ever jealous of other academics, but this was the best <laughs> title, and I wish I had thought of it. And it was, is environmental justice good for white folks? And what they did was they looked at metropolitan regions around the United States, and they found out that where there was more inequality and exposure, there was just more exposure. Mm -hmm. That when people thought it was being placed in someone else's neighborhood, they just tolerated more of it. It's also true in the state, that when you think about who is an environmentalist, our notion is that it must be some Skinny white guy in bicycle pants. Uh, but if you look at the polling, <laughs> but stereotyping. But if you look at the polling data uh, from the Public Policy Institute of California, and you ask Californians the question, "Do you think that global warming is a very serious threat to uh, the quality of life and the economy in California?" About half of white Californians say yes. Fifty-seven to fifty-eight percent of Black and Asian Californians say yes. And about almost two-thirds of Latino Californians say yes. Because when you think about global warming, they're also thinking about the localized oh. pollution. So there are all sorts of good political reasons to be paying attention to this for the reasons that Mary was mentioning. Because so many of the legislators now grew up like I did yeah. in mm-hmm. La Puente with lots of pollution around going, I know this is not good for me.
1: Well, I got to say, I don't think of the skinny white guy anymore when I think of like the <laughs> California environmentalist. I think of a person of color. I think of somebody who's not from Brentwood or Santa Monica, but somebody who's from La Puente or from one of the port communities, San Pedro, uh, Rubidoux. So I, I think that that's we've kind of turned yeah, that page, no? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. Yes. Well, if you
2: look at who's actually lobbying in Sacramento, and as Manuel said, I mean, we had an issue on the ballot um, during the depths of the last big depression, uh, where a group of oil companies uh, sponsored an initiative to suspend the California global warming program uh, because of uh, very high rates of unemployment. And so it said until the unemployment levels come down, we're just not going to do any more of this climate stuff because it's obviously too expensive. It was overwhelmingly defeated, overwhelmingly defeated, but disproportionately it was defeated in communities of color.
1: And Catherine, how do you feel about just kind of the state of uh, air quality activism and climate activism in your part of California? And by the way, you could talk about other places. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> please don't feel you're just here to talk about the Central Valley. But, but do you, have you seen changes there? Is it remarkably stronger than a lot of us would think? Or are people basically, they've got other issues. They're just trying to survive day to day. They're trying to put food on their tables, provide for their families. And that's enough of a struggle.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think I'd answer that in a few different ways. I'd say at the macro level, I would absolutely credit environmental justice activism with increasing the recognition of racial disparities and air inequalities. And I think that that is an important um, achievement to be able to honor. And at the same time, environmental justice isn't just about recognition. It's also about fundamentally changing the outcomes and the distributions of what are sometimes referred to as benefits and burdens, right? So both the pollution, but also the nice things, the amenities, the park space, the things that we want in our community. So I, you know, I think it's important that we've made that progress. I think that there's still a lot more progress to be made. Part of what I love about working for the Central Valley Air Quality Coalition is that we are a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, very powerful movement that has existed for, um, you know, a couple of decades now. That is really about sustaining the vision for the things that we want to see in our community and while I think it's also significant that we're at this place now where we're talking about recognizing community members as experts and really ground truthing the data that air agencies are producing, um, at the same time, I think, again, we're still operating at the theory level and we are not actually directly seeing those improvements in our communities.
1: Do you think the particular set of concerns there in that region get the kind of attention they should get from, take your pick. Municipal power centers like San Francisco and L.A., Sacramento, Washington, D.C., uh, Mary Nichols' past, current colleagues and past colleagues. I mean, do you, do you, do you feel like you have, you have a voice and, as importantly, you're being listened to?
4: I feel like we have a voice, and it's important that we're being listened to. I also teach California geography, so I'm very aware of the fact that the San Joaquin Valley economically is a sacrifice zone, where a lot of the unwanted things from other parts of the state and the country have been purposely sited there for a whole variety of factors. Um, and so, you know, again, we still have those those ongoing challenges to deal with.
1: I want to turn to uh, an issue we've gotten a a couple of questions on. One from a a celebrity viewer, Mas Masamoto, the the writer uh, from your part of the state. Um, And it's about, you know, I think when we think about how we're going to solve both climate change and air quality issues, a lot of us immediately turn to EVs, electric vehicles. That's one kind of salvation. Uh, Moss Moss asked about them, and I'm sure he echoes many others who are listening or viewing this about like, yeah, EVs, aren't they going to, if we just go all in on them, is that the solution? And I will say, as a kind of a a bit of a, I support EVs, but a bit of a skeptic in terms of targets not missed in the past, I mean, not hit in the past, I mean, they're only, we've been talking about EVs for about 30 years in this state, they're only at around two or 3% adoption, right, in California, correct me if I'm wrong on the figures, so (laughs) <laughs> Talk yeah. about we're doing, that. We're doing better. Okay, we're do, well, it's still no, they, not a huge amount. Sales levels honest. are above 10%. And, and EVs are not at a price point where a lot of right. people can afford them. I see, a lot more, I see a lot more Teslas out there compared to things that a lot of other people can uh, afford. So take that on. I'm looking to you. I mean, do you think, do we oversell that technology? Is it where it should be? And what do we get right and wrong about it?
2: Well, first of all, you know we're human, and so we always want to believe that there's a technology solution. We do, and uh, we're Californians, and in general, people in California kind of like cars uh, or trucks or SUVs. That's part of our part of our history, right? Uh, So uh, having a zero-emission vehicle, which was once a dream, and then it was a law that really couldn't be enforced, is now actually a real thing in the sense that every major manufacturer is actually producing EVs, and they are really trying to market them. So it's not a fake. It's a real thing, and governments are putting serious money Gavin Newsom is planning to put a very large share of the current surplus into building the infrastructure and helping to keep the prices down at levels where they would be relatively affordable. I mean, they're not going to be affordable if you can't buy a car at all. But even then, um, they're looking at ways to allow for more electric bicycles and to make transit vehicles electric. And maybe most important, going back to the trucks, Uh, which are fumigating everybody in their path, Um, those are gonna have to be zero emission in just a few years and companies are actually, manufacturers are actually designing and building those vehicles. This is all necessary. It's a good thing. It's going to happen. It's going to take, you know, a few years. But if you had asked me even like 10 years ago, did I think that by 2030, most of the vehicles on the roads would be electric or zero emission? Because they could be a fuel cell or a combination. A hydrogen. Um, uh, yeah, I would say, I, I would have said, wow, I, it would be nice. but that's probably not possible. Now it, it really is possible. And, and I think governments at all levels, cities, uh, are, are really pushing to make that happen. But it's not enough. That's no. the thing. <laughs> that, that is still not going to meet we the... We have a question coming in now about, <laughs> yeah.
1: about subsidies and whether they're sufficient or not.
3: Well, I think the whole uh, thing with EV at this point is to stop thinking about the technological side of it and think more about the social side of it. So uh, we need to develop a secondhand market in EVs so that as people are handing their car down Mm -hmm. and that the deep subsidies should go to low-income people because they're going to retire a clunker Mm -hmm. that's heavily polluting if they move into an EV. We need to get charging stations into apartment buildings or into shared spaces. We need to electrify buses Mm -hmm. as well as trucks so i think uh you're right we tend to think god if we just had this technological silver bullet we could give up all the pain of the actual social adjustment but we need to think about how this actually plays out
1: any other comments on that
4: i would add thinking about a region like the san joaquin valley that is very rural thinking about tailored solutions people who have to uh, travel really long distances, and we have really great locally innovated models. So shout out to Mayor Ray Leon in the city of Huron mm-hmm. for innovating Green Riteros, which is a rideshare program for people Hi. who live in the city of Huron, um, to be able to, to have access to zero emission vehicles when they need to go to things like doctor's appointments. We also have programs like farmworker van pool programs that those van pools could be electrified um, in order to make sure that we're really serving the needs of the populations in the valley.
1: You know, I got go to go to you about one big transportation project that's taking place in the the central valley and that is high-speed rail and candidly when you look at that I'm sure you drive by the construction site or many times or you've seen it when you look at that do you think oh that's a solution to our air pollution problems in the central valley or do you think oh that's a white elephant in the making and we could be spending that money on a lot of other things to help for higher air quality in the San Joaquin Valley
4: my honest assessment would be yes to both
1: yes to both okay yes uh, That's i'm how all I about trains questions.
4: i lived in germany for a while having really efficient low emission or zero emission train systems is a great way to get people around um, but this project has been going on for an incredibly long time and has, there's been way too much money spent on it
1: that could have been spent on other things absolutely that maybe more modest pro projects that had a a more of a tangible effect on air quality. And the, I'm, not, I'm not putting words in your mouth.
4: And that would be more accessible to the average person instead of the people that are going to be able to afford the ticket of the high-speed rail once once it's completed.
1: Um, is there anything, I mean, I'm sure you each have your, your, your criticisms of, of corporate California and what it's done wrong, and industrial society, and capitalism. Um, do you have anything for the conservatives who might be watching, who are watching, I'm sure? Is there anything you could say where, oh, That's an interesting market-based solution to what we see here, and that's an interesting way to close the air quality inequity gap in the state. Is there anything at all that you see, or is that not the case?
2: Well, I'm a big fan of the uh, low carbon fuel standard in California back in the day when uh, the federal government was trying to force people to use ethanol uh, and to dump large amounts of it into uh, gasoline. Uh, which did not have a good impact either on climate or on uh, emissions in many cases. California, with the help of some faculty members from the University of California, designed a market-based program where the oil industry is required to reduce the carbon content of the fuels that they sell for vehicles in California. They can do it either by investing in lower carbon fuels like renewable biodiesel, for example, which is made from waste basically waste oil in general, or they could um, buy credits from companies that are manufacturing all kinds of innovative clean fuels and help build the market for those in California. So California really is the center of innovation on zero emission or very low emission fuels from everything like algae to, you know, various kinds of bio crops and stuff. All of which are little niche markets right now, but if you look at what's happened, the refining industry in California is converting to making renewable fuels for aircraft where they're not using petroleum fuel at all anymore um, for real flights. I mean, this is actually happening, and it's something where some pretty clever policy by the state, which was resisted ferociously by the oil industry, I might add. I mean, they, yeah. they fought it at every turn. But once it was became law and they couldn't fight it anymore, they have uh, been complying, and it's actually... Um, making a difference both economically and environmentally.
3: Hmm. Well, I think what Murray's talking about is a kind of sweet spot where you have pretty strict standards and you're trying to force the technological change Mm -hmm. and then allow the companies to figure out how they're going to meet some of those standards. But of course, this gives me an opportunity to talk about my new book, (laughs) Solidarity Economics, uh, which does pick up on some of these issues, and there's three points about it I would lift up. This is the typical academic taking advantage of answering a question you didn't ask. So first, we need to stop talking about the environment and start talking about our environment. This is an environment we make by rules, by power, by markets. Second, we need to start realizing that there's not a trade-off in the economy really between promoting equity and promoting prosperity and there's not a trade-off between promoting environmental justice and improving air quality a point i made earlier and third this is really catherine's point that you don't make any of these changes unless you muster the political power to make them happen so even the low carbon fuel standard is a challenge to oil companies. That's what winds up making
1: change. What do you do about the people who don't agree with you, who represent a good portion of the population? What do you do about them?
3: Well, I, you know, there is a thing called democracy and voting. Right. And I think that what it means is that we need to be doing good organizing. We need to be making solid arguments. We need to make sure that people are aware that these are important issues, and doing what we can. I mean, the shift in California to paying attention to the environment and the shift in California to paying attention to environmental inequality have been the result of organizing and shifting the political calculus to make it happen. It's been about persuasion, it's been about research, and it's just been about winning elections.
1: Um, we've gotten a um, question about land use policy and this issue. It's uh, without getting too much into the weeds and zoning regulations and all the rest, um, is that a fundamental solution as well? Just changing how we use our land, where we put things, um, that's going to become an increasingly critical response to clean, keeping our air clean and, and climate change. Yes. Yes.
2: That's a simple answer to that. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, it needs to be because uh, if you uh, continue to uh, require people to move farther and farther away from where they work or from where there's opportunity, um, you're also making it impossible uh, for them to use mass transit in many cases or to live a healthy life by walking to uh, various kinds of amenities. It's a form of discrimination, really, uh, that we certainly see in other parts of the world where um, you don't have thoughtful uh, land use that makes it possible to have communities where people can uh, be healthy and uh, also you know, have access to everything that they need. Uh, there's been work done for years back in, I think, the 80s. The Energy Commission did some modeling work that showed how um, compact urban communities, walkable, livable communities, not talking about you know, high rises with no trees, but talking about places that you and I would look at and say, yeah, that's a, that's a really nice neighborhood. Um, also, uh, use less energy overall. Uh, they don't require as much energy to um, for the houses for the the buildings themselves you can uh, you can get around with less emissions and so yes it has to be part of the solution
1: catherine on on another issue you you spoke uh, your first comments were about uh, climate change you folded climate change into your first response to a question and how it's frightening when you look at the projections from the central Valley in terms of what temperature rise and all the rest. I think there was a UC Merced study that came out recently about for, you know, we talk about one or two degree temperature rise, like eight degrees, which is enormous. Do you fear that if those changes occur, they basically just wipe out what we've done in terms of air quality issues and plus create a bunch of other problems? Is that like, you know, if you plop yourself in the Central Valley of the year 2050, what is your fear?
4: I mean, I think there's certainly a risk of that. And at the same time, as people have already spoken to, you know, we need to have hope that things can be different. There are a lot of solutions. There are a lot of things that we can transform and change now so that in 2050 that won't be our reality. And community design is also a fundamental aspect of making sure that we have resilient communities where people will be protected regardless of what happens. You know, Dr. Pastor talked earlier about the campaign to have... Um, health and safety setbacks between oil and gas wells and where people live, right? Trying to create separation between where people are and where the pollution is coming from. Um, I do also quickly wanna touch on the question about market-based mechanisms because in the San Joaquin Valley particularly, I have seen how market-based mechanisms disproportionately concentrate more pollution in our region because of the way that the schemes are run, and fundamentally because a lot of our local agencies and our regional air district are captured um, by by um, industry essentially and are working hand in hand with the oil industry to create um, credit systems that then they use to trade to be able to increase their pollution when it's all just a paper game and the emissions are going up, but there aren't any actual. Reductions. Um, So when I think of you know a hopeful vision and you know solidarity economics and what can we create in the San Joaquin Valley, I have to hold that up against the everyday political reality that I have to confront, right? That our decision makers are often working more closely with the polluting industries than they are to represent the majority of the people that are living in our region.
1: And those forces know how to exercise power and how to wield power, and they've been used to doing it for a very long time, whether it's big ag, big oil, right? I mean, look at Kern County, right? And the petroleum industry's uh, clout there. So it sounds like you're saying, so when you hear things like emission credits and and kind of market-based approach, you think that's no solution.
4: No, I don't think it's a solution and I think it's part of what is causing the inequality. It's part of what's concentrating the pollution in low income communities and communities of color because it allows them to take credit for something that happened in some other place.
3: Um, Yes. There's nothing about markets that guarantee equity and you need to have the safeguards in these programs to make sure that you don't get these inequitable results. Those safeguards are not that hard to design or put in, but they do get resisted. And I think that's been the challenge. I wanna say one other thing and it kinda of comes from what Mary was saying also about compact development and your question about quote unquote the other side. Which is I one of the things that happens with compact development is there's a lot of nimbyism mm-hmm. that resists it. And so beginning to communicate to people who are fearful of that development that, you know, it's not someone else is going to move into your neighborhood it actually might be your kids Mm -hmm. it's our neighborhood that when our neighborhoods are more diverse they're stronger better on energy more affordable housing better workforce etc but the way we're going to get there is through a combination of persuasion and frankly power
1: um yeah and i also think of by the way, we have like a hundred years of urban planning behind us. And it's not like we're gonna change our communities like that when I hear about-
2: But some things like- could change pretty quickly. Uh, COVID caused a lot of people to realize that they didn't, that living alone is not necessarily healthy. And um, you know, whole families that I know, including mine, realized that we were much better off when we were sharing a household together and taking care of each other than living in separate houses. So. I was able to persuade my son and daughter-in-law and my grandson to come and live with me. That was wonderful for me. But oh, that's it was going well? What's nice to Really? Is it going well? It was, but it was also good for them. Absolutely. It, uh, and honestly, when people that I know of my age heard about it, they all wanted to know how we did it and could they do it. And changes in zoning laws are actually a big factor
1: in making that happen. I'm doing a project on that very issue right now about some cha- big changes in zoning laws in single-family neighborhoods. Um, one of the solutions that, that came to mind is um, you, know, you often hear people think, well, you know, one when it comes to our vehicle, how we use our vehicles and transitioning from, from, from cars to EVs or hydrogen vehicles is just raise the price of gasoline. It, tax it big, of course it has a huge impact on people who of, 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 uh, of fewer means, uh, people who are working class, um, but given that, would, do any of you support that? Just like a big increase in the gas tax as a way to, to, to compel people to start shifting to other modes of transportation, to clean our air, to fight climate change. Is that like a no duh solution or is the pain too great for the most vulnerable?
2: Well, first of all, um, California already has a high gasoline taxes and a higher price on gasoline than any other place. Oh, yes. But really Same what place. we want is not to punish people for driving. What we want is to enable them to switch to not having to drive or to cleaner vehicles and make it possible to finance those things. And I think that's the direction that we're moving in. It's how do you make the transition to where we really need to go and do it on on a faster and more equitable basis than we've been able to do in the past? I think that's the question.
1: Here's my question again. I don't okay. know if that was a question, but like I asked, but, but what tax I'm asking the right is there, if there's a solution out there, yes. a big solution, gas tax is one, there could be others, carbon tax, whatever, and how it plays out in the marketplace and in people's lives, is there a solution that you would embrace that it's going to cause pain? And it might even cause a little bit more pain among people who aren't earning as much if we, if we impose it on a societal level? Don't ask me the details. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. Is that something? I mean, right? I mean, there is there is sacrifice here. No, to clean our air.
4: But why <gasps> shouldn't the oil industry feel okay? Pain, right? So oil let's industry. Re- let's remove their subsidies and their corporate. Okay. Unfair. Okay. That's what I would.
1: Support. And then for people who aren't in the, just people, choose your income level. I mean, is there is there something we're all going and we've gotten questions about this? What can I do? Right? What can me, me sitting at home watching this YouTube video with you fine, smart people, what can we do? So, what can they do, painful or not?
3: So, you know, one thing to think about with this idea of a carbon tax is what do you do with the money? And you can make investments that actually improve people's lives, particularly in low-income communities of color. You can rebate the money directly so that those who might have suffered from higher fossil fuel prices feel cushioned uh, by that. It's kind of what we do with a child tax credit. Um, And so I think those are the kinds of things we can do. And in terms of what viewers can do individually, it's to stop thinking individually. And try to figure out with your neighbors how you can organize your community to accept more affordable housing, to change the zoning, to push for uh, free public transportation, to get the state of California to pay special attention to hotspots, to make sure that we're dealing with the inequities in the Central Valley. This is not something that can be solved by a technological fix, and much as I try to change my own behavior, my own behavior isn't going to change things unless I link up with other people who want to change the constellation of power and change the policies that we pursue.
1: Manuel, are you, are you like ready for a personal fa- sacrifice? Would you like, you know, it's gonna hurt me, my pocketbook, but I'm gonna buy that EV, ca- maybe you drive an EV, I don't know, I don't, but I mean, I'm gonna buy that EV car or I'm gonna install this, these, these new kind of uh, uh, kitchen uh, equipment or uh, I mean, are, are you, what's your sacrifice? Well, I do drive an EV. Right. Uh, I try to awesome.
2: jump
3: in. It's not a Tesla, it's a bull TV. <laughs> I didn't
2: say anything. I wanted, I wanted to
3: make sure that I had a bad battery. Um, but I jumped in early because I realized that somebody with my income should help open up that market. Um, I, uh, you know, When there's questions of changing zoning in our neighborhood, I'm like, OK, let's go ahead and do that. Because uh, why is my neighborhood yeah. better than someone else's neighborhood? So I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I try not to be a hypocrite about the things that I am proposing.
1: Yeah, and I focused on you, and I didn't really mean to focus on you, but I did, was basically just, you know, it, oh, and it tax, just- tax the crap out of me, okay? Yes, and buy his book, fine. and buy his <laughs> book so he could afford to pay the taxes that you just heard about a yeah. few minutes ago. But is there something, okay, let me ask the question a different way. Is there something that we're not talking about when it comes to getting our arms around air pollution, how it affects, Various communities of color, different income groups, communities of color in particular, according to your research, Um, climate change and the same issues. Is there something that you just wish, wow, this should be solved, you should be reporting on this more, this should be more in the public discourse, this should be on CNN a lot more, is there something that we're just kind of not paying enough attention. Yes. Yes, go. Yes, Go, go, tell me. (laughs) People want
2: to know. Uh, Well, I mean, California, first of all, is not all um, south of San Francisco. Our state has a lot of land that's forested, and in in addition to other natural lands and deserts and so forth, that are of great value as recreation, as sources of clean air, uh, and as, places that people want to go to. And we need to be thinking about factoring those into the equation as well, because to the point about thinking more about the community, um, if people can get out and take a walk on a beach or go to the mountains or experience the uh, pleasures of uh, you know seeing natural spaces somewhere close to their communities, it gives them uh, some release from the pressures of worrying about (laughs) all these other issues all the time. Um, It helps to uh, build support for creating a more resilient uh, community where people can uh, live better lives. And those two things shouldn't be seen as like Completely separate from each other. You know, the economy, jobs, houses over here, and all that nature stuff over here. They are yeah. integrally right. connected to each other. And um, the unified
1: pres- field theory of.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, the fact that we uh, mistreated the forests and, you know, when they burn now, they burn so catastrophically, which is making everybody's air better, everybody's air worse, I should say, as well. As destroying, you know, forested lands is a consequence of bad thinking about those issues, and it really needs to get more attention and more
1: uh, support. Well, Catherine, anything?
4: You know, I think California has a lot of brilliant minds, and decision makers love to talk about the environmental leadership of the state of California. And I think you know we have a huge opportunity to take action to show how we can really truly do that in this state. So. Tying this back to kind of the introduction that you gave me and some of the topics that we've touched on, I would particularly call out academics and decision makers in the state of California to do the type of integrated thinking that Mary was just talking about and to engage in authentic dialogue and collaboration with people in environmental justice communities so that we can innovate and tailor those solutions together.
1: All right, well, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Zocalo people, but we are, About out of time, I wanted to thank our great guests and their patience with my questions both articulate and otherwise. I wanna thank all of you for watching. Uh, This uh, video will be archived on the Zocalo YouTube channel, so check it out whenever you want. You can still keep on leaving questions, maybe even ask some questions, and we'll circle back to them. Um, I wanna thank the Zocalo staff for their generosity and their kindness in putting this on. Uh, Stay tuned to their future programming. It's always great here at Zocalo. I go to the website a lot myself. Thank you for joining us tonight, and uh, breathe clean air. Good breathing to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs>